Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast. My name is Andrew Sill. I'm your host of this podcast dedicated to radio control flight. Now, what an episode it's going to be because we have probably one of Australia's greatest aero modelling exports, you could say, in Peter Goldsmith, who's going to be joining us a bit later. Peter, he has had a great career in Australia flying aerobatics and then uh, moved over to the US was almost poached away from Australia to the US, where he then held the position for many, many years uh, in, the, in the marketing area at Horizon Hobby. So I caught up with uh, Peter over over the internet. He's still living in the US. And not only is he a, he's a, a great pilot, a great builder, but just a great gentleman as well, as you will tell. So stay tuned for that interview coming up shortly. But before we get into that, let's take a look at what's been happening out there in the hobby. Just when we thought things were going to improve, they're getting worse. If you live down here in Victoria, Australia, well, our corona numbers are in double digits. I think last count was something like 75 in the last 24 hours. So numbers are getting a bit out of hand, but we're still able to fly. What was interesting, I went and visited the uh, Pakenham Club last weekend uh, and you have to register to go and because you've got a maximum of 20 uh, pilots are allowed to go and they didn't get the full 20. So even with the restrictions, most clubs don't see 20 people at one time at the club. Uh, but uh, I just wish this year would be over, to be honest. It's been, it's been, there's too many bad things that have happened this year. And uh, I, I think 2021 is going to be a great year. My, my prediction is New Year's Eve, we're all going to be totally and utterly drunk, just celebrating the end of the year, not really the new year, but the end of this year. But I suppose from a hobby perspective, really missing events and uh, we don't know what's happening with events. The Shepherd and Mammoth flying, big event. We don't know what's happening. But there is an event happening up in um, Queensland. Let me bring it up. Uh, Tyson Dodd sent me a message around the at the Casino Airport. I'm sure it's the Casino Airport. A jet event, I think, he's running. Because um, Queensland's doing a really good job. You guys have got it all sorted up there. That uh, You've almost next to zero cases now, which is great to see. So well done if you live in Queensland. Now, Queensland has got it good. You know, I, Sometimes I wish I lived in Queensland. Your weather's better, so you can fly more. You have some really great events. You've got some really good pilots, some really good people in the hobby up there. Maybe I need to move to Queensland. So we're back. Queensland Turbine Flies, Casino Private Airport, July 23rd to 26th. Secure hangar storage, pilot family welcome, pilot's dinner. That's what I love to see. It's not just about flying. It's about everybody getting getting together. Entry fee, $60 for Queensland turbine flyers, $75 for non-members, AAA members only, of course, because it's uh, running under their uh, guidance. Uh, so Casino Private Airport. Now, Tyson mentioned to me that he's, uh, he's sort of pulling a few strings to get some events running at the private airport, which is uh, great to see. Uh, expanding beyond clubs. Sometimes clubs don't like running events, which I don't know why they don't. But anyway, they don't like running events because they've got to shut the club down for a while or whatever. But um, Tyson, who has been on the podcast, and as you know, is the secretary of the MAAA and doing an excellent job uh, working his butt off for us, uh, is putting on this Queensland Turbine Flyers event, a beautiful flyer, thanks to Tyson's wife, apparently. I, I sent a message and said, gee, that's a really nice flyer. So the Queensland Turbine Flyers, July the 23rd to the 26th at the Casino Private Airport. This could be a highlight in 2020. Secure hangar storage makes it great. You can leave your kit, your models made up. 
It's a three-day event. Leave them made up. Put them in the in the secure hangar. You don't have to worry. Just take them out and fly. Pilot's family welcome. There you go. Pilot's dinner. What more could you ask for from an event? So well done, Tyson and the team at Queensland. Turbine flies. Don't forget July 23rd, 26th. Now, there's another little thing um, I noticed. I just want to mention it briefly, and that's about... um. I was just I was doing a bit of scouring around forums and things like that, and really starting to wonder where are people going for their hobby information. And we and I think it's multiple sources. Some go to forums, some go to YouTube, some go to Facebook, some go to Instagram. You know all the different platforms now. And from my perspective, it's very hard to know what to do. I can tell you now that everybody's going to the podcast. Numbers are okay, but uh, let's just not say, let's say that. Uh, you know, we've only got a fraction of the percentage of the Australian flying population actually listen. So tell, tell your friends about this podcast as another resource to motivate you. And But it was interesting. I saw this post on the RC Groups uh, forum, and there is an Australian section on the RC Groups, and we all know who RC Groups is. That forum has been around for a long time. And Michael Hobson, who happens to be the MAAQ, I think, president, and I know Michael through aerobatics. He was president of the Scale Aeros Association. Speaking of Scale Aeros, Next week, stay tuned. We have the, the current president of the uh, Scale Aeros IMAC on, Michael Andrusik, will be uh, joining me. But Michael Hobson went and put a post on uh, RC Group, started a new sort of group, a uh, new chat titled Aussie Aero Modeling Good News Stories. Now he goes on to say, Hi, all. I've only been part of these forums for a short period of time, but unfortunately, it seemed like many discussions get distracted by politics or personalities. Whilst open discussion of the administration of our hobby and everything that goes with it, such as regulations, insurance, etc., etc., has its place, it's certainly not what attracted anyone to our hobby. And regardless of where you stand on the administration of our hobby, it is obvious that it is in everyone's interest to continue to grow and promote our hobby. We need to all remember what's important about aero modelling, the joy of getting your plane into the air, introducing newbies to the hobby, the camaraderie and fellowship of mixing with like-minded, passionate aero modellers. And he goes on to explain sort of his uh, his um, activity in the hobby, which is uh, quite vast and well done. But then he goes on to say at the very end, I invite all of you to share your good news stories, in quotation marks, of error modelling in Australia. It can be as simple uh, as good service from a supplier, mating a new plane, or just having a good day at the field. Post some photos and let's remember why we do this hobby. Excellent. Michael Hobson, well done. Uh, you know, in the past few days, I've had various different people airing their concerns about what's happening at their club and this person and that person, and this happened, why don't they do this and the president's no good and all this kind of stuff. And personally, I'm getting sick of it and it's just boring. And as Michael said, none of us got into the hobby to get involved in politics. And oh, I've got this, I'm on this buzz at the moment where if anybody out there has made RC model flying the be all and end all in their life, of course, you're going to start talking about the politics and insurance issues and regulations and the president of the club and all that because you've got nothing else. Once you've talked about servos and motors and prop sizes and what all you're running fuel, the next thing is, oh, the MAAA don't know what they're doing. The president doesn't know what they're doing. And it's all an absolute, not a load of rubbish. And as Michael has said, none of us got into it for that. So remember that. Ditch the politics. It's not important. If you just focus on going to fly and enjoying your plane and all that kind of stuff and helping out, things will be different. If you want to go and whinge, go and find another hobby. I know this happens in a lot of different associations, a lot of different clubs, a lot of when you get like-minded, passionate people together, these kind of things will be discussed, but it gets boring after a while. So if anybody sees me at the field and really wants to come and have a chat about the politics and make a beeline for me, 
I'll give you some time, but then after a while, I just want to go and fly my plane. And I think there's many of us that are like that. Everybody, take a chill pill, just go and fly your planes and be nice to each other. The great thing about the internet is that we can connect across borders very, very easily. And today's special guest is Peter Goldsmith, who is an Australian, but uh, has been living in America for many, many years, I think since the early 2000s, when he moved over there to uh, take up a job with Horizon Hobby. Uh, Now, Horizon Hobby being the biggest brand of uh, sort of hobby business going around in the world for for very good reason. They run a very, very good show down there, uh, very commercially minded. But uh, uh, as you'll find out with the discussion with Peter, he really enjoyed his time and has got a very soft spot for Horizon Hobby. But Peter's life, uh, flying life started in Australia and uh, rose up through the ranks and um, uh, was very, very competitive in aerobatics, uh, like uh, pattern aerobatics, flew internationally. Um, but uh, look, enough of me telling you all about Peter. Let's go to our chat with that I had with uh, Peter all the way from the US, me here in Melbourne, Australia. And what a chat it was! It's it's quite a it's quite an involved one. Goes for quite a while, but stay tuned because it, it is really a great chat from one of the great figures in era modelling on the world stage. So over to Peter Goldsmith. Peter Goldsmith, thanks for joining me. Hey, it's a pleasure. It's good to catch up with uh, my my brothers down there. Yeah, well, you, you know, you, you're joining me all the way from Illinois in the US, and we'll get to the reason why you're there. But you've been there for quite some time, but. Uh, it's a it's a nice sunny day down here in Melbourne. Where, where originally were you from in Australia? I was born and bred in Sydney. I'm a Sydney boy, so I keep the Brisbane guys and the Victorians apart from each other. So I was kind of what they call neutral ground. There's always a football jokes in there. Yeah, that's right. Well, still a staunch supporter of the uh, the Blues. Oh, are you? <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh, I've got I've got a friend of mine that actually lives in the US, and he he's really still tied to Australia through uh, any uh, any sporting activity as well. So you can't you can't lose it. Now, well, you know, I I am I am a US citizen. I'm I'm not going to deny that, and I'm proud to be a US citizen. But I'm also an Australian citizen, and that's where I was born, and that's that's my heritage. And you know, I love both countries, and I I have great memories and friends in both. So you know, it's it's okay. Well, you've you've from a from a hobby perspective, you really left your mark on the Australian scene. And I, you know, when you look really in the past uh, 30, 40 years at any Australian era model that's really taken it to the world, I think your name is probably at the top of that heap in uh, what you've achieved and, and where you've ended up. And I, and I want to get into that a bit more. So where did your journey in era modeling start? You know, I... I... A lot of people have parents or cousins or brothers or some kind of connection um, that they were kind of born into. I was really unique. My dad was a fisherman. My mum was an artist. Um, I had no real connection to the hobby, but I was born with this this love for flight. And mum used to tell me I'd walk around as a four-year-old kid saying, I want a ball supplying airplane. I'd figured out at that age that it had to be made of balsa to be able to fly. I'm not sure where I knew that from, but my parents bought me this. It was actually an Aeroflight L19 bird dog. And it was like just a sheet rubber powered model. And dad and I built this thing and it kind of flew. <laughs> but, you know, we made it ourselves and it was fantastic. You know, I was just like giddy. 
And that's kind of the first initial connection. Well, then I was off. Then it was like, you know, I was buying balsa wood at the shop and mowing lawns and stuff and creating my own models. And it just grew from there. And, and before I knew it, I was just an avid RC modeler and very resourceful because I didn't have a lot of money. So I was learning how to create models at a very little amount of money. So it meant instead of buying kits, I would buy the wood and buy the covering and glue, and, which wasn't that uncommon back then. But, you know, it's very uncommon now. So it gave me a great grounding. That's interesting that... that that everyone that I interviewed that, that came in that year, are we talking, what, 60s, 70s here? Uh, I was born in 63, so it would I would have been about 69, 70, 69, somewhere in there. Yeah. That I had my first actual, you know, flying model aircraft experience. Yeah, because no, I, was, well, I was born in 73, and, and even into the 80s, there was still that thing of, like, as a kid, I'd look at the Airborne magazine and all the planes, and yep. think, oh, I can't yep. afford any of that, and... And nowadays, fast forward to where we are now, the hobby is more affordable than ever. Of course, we've got things like foam aircraft and you don't see the newcomers in the hobby having that struggle like we had to when we were younger to save up money and to slowly build up things and and that kind of thing. But I think that that era really cemented a lot of our love for the hobby. It was kept us tinkering and, and involved in it. It wasn't as if we were just the ultimate consumers where we'd buy a plane and go and crash it and that was it. It was... Okay, we had to spend our time, research, slowly save our money to build up. So you started with, say, a rubber band powered plane, and then after that, did you get into control line or was it straight to radio control? You know, I, I did a little control line. I, I was a member of a, a club in, in uh, North Ryde where I was born, and um, we did just, you know, hanging out schoolyards with my buddies and stuff. And one of my friends got a two-channel, I think it was Futaba radio, think that's all there was back then and um he had an aeroflight trident which is a like a two meter i think they just started making them again two meter sailplane so that was like eye-opening beyond you could imagine for a guy that was flying something with strings you know it's like wow he can go anywhere with that model my mother was a very very good uh, bowler like 10 pin bowler uh, she was representing Australia in the Oceanic Championships, which is where I get my competitiveness from, as both my parents are incredibly competitive. And she won a lot of money, but she was also competing in Singapore, where these radios were really cheap. I want to say I was 11, and she brought me back this two-channel, uh, it's called a Bionic Baby, it was a two-channel Futaba radio. And it was dry cell, um, the cheapest radio you could get was $139. This is back in 1975. So, yeah, things have really come down in price. So I built this Aeroflight Trident myself, and that was my first RC model. And I want to say it was like 78 or 77, somewhere in there. Yeah. And was it bungee launch, or how were you launching it? Well, <laughs> I've told this story a few times, and I'll try and sort of slim it down a little bit. I was competing with myself back then i i was throwing it off a hill uh the local um uh football field there was this kind of like hill where they graded the field flat and there's a hill off one side and i throw my glider off this um off this hill and it would go you know 100 yards 100 meters or so and i'm like wow how can i make it go further and so I kept making it bigger and changing airfoils. And I was kind of doing all this self-teaching of aerodynamics. And I learned very quickly that the bigger the wing was, the further it would go. And I met this gentleman. His name was Peter Wade. And he just turned up. And he was doing like a little school 
and he was taking young kids. It's amazing what this guy did. And, and, you know, the people that came out of that school, you know, went on to be world-class modelers. Um, and he said, look, if you take that up a bungee, you know, you can launch it three, 300 feet. I'm like, what's a bungee? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he took me to this field when we went off the bungee and then it was like the whole world opened up, you know. So and the first year I flew, I never made a turn because that stopped the glider from going further. But you were still having fun though, weren't you? I was having a blast. I mean, I yeah. couldn't wait. I couldn't get to bed quick enough so I could wake up for the next day. Every day after school, every like constant, constant, constant flying every single moment I could. You know, and I'm driving to the field in a, on a push bike with the glider stuck on the back. And dry cells that were on their last legs and I have to go and mow lawns to get new dry cells. You know, the whole, it was just great. It was really cool. Yeah, it's good when you look back at, at those days in the early days when we all got involved. And for me, I, a similar story with gliders as well. I think that was sort of, you know, it seemed more affordable than a petrol-powered plane and, you know, and uh, I used to, down here in Melbourne, there was a park, Elstonwick Park, and you used to see these people flying these gliders and uh, can't do it anymore. But uh, it was amazing. Now, after that, so you had the Trident, you started getting off the bungee. What was the next step after that? Well, the next step after that was I, I started to fly. The, I, I'm not sure if it's still there, but uh, Macquarie University had these big open fields behind it. And we had this kind of little, I don't know, ad lib club. There was about 20 of us flying there. Every Saturday, Sunday, we'd, we'd fly nonstop. And one of the gentlemen that was there was competing with gliders. And at this stage, I had a model called a wind drifter, which is a much better performing glider, a lot lighter, bigger wingspan. And he said, oh, there's a glider competition at Kellyville. Would you be interested in going to that? Well, I was like 14 years old or something. So he drove me to this event. And uh, I did okay. I think I got a good landing and a couple of long flights and stuff. But I, I was just absolutely hooked. I'm like, oh, so now I've got a way to measure myself. So I just started hitting the competition glider circuit every single event I could fly in. And I, I became quite successful at it, designing my own gliders and competing and ended up in national championships. Well, at the same time, I was heavily into surfing. And I saw these guys flying off the hill at Long Reef. I'm like, oh, let's check that out. So I went up the hill and they've got these incredible slope soars doing all these crazy aerobatics. And I'm like, man, I'm going to do that. So I got myself this slope soar and... I would spend, I'd say, I'd surf in the morning, I'd go up the hill about 11, 11.30 to 12, grab some lunch, and I would fly from 12 o'clock till dark every day from summer. So from, uh, I want to say, early May, sorry, I'm in the US summer here. Um, the summer start in Australia, like September through to May, I would be at the beach eight or nine hours a day flying up the slope. Well, in the winter time, as you know, the sea breeze doesn't blow, so I'm like, well, now what am I going to do? So I ended up putting this this gentleman, Peter Way, gave me this engine. I put that on the front of my glider. <laughs> Not on <a> nitro. <laughs> and now I'm doing aerobatics without the slope, you know, and that's how I got into flying aerobatics with, with, with powered aircraft. Kind of crazy way to get into it. it but, you know. that's, that's unique. <laughs> I've never heard of anybody do that. So you, you put a nitro engine on the front of your glider. Yes. yes. What, what no, size it was motor? a slope, so it was quite aerobatic without yeah. the motor, so. So what size motor would have been a little, little small? It was a uh, OS 25 oh, was with it? no okay. throttle. No yep. throttle. <laughs> Two yeah. channel. Uh, now, so, <laughs> so you started flying. So so the gliding led to the aerobatics or the slope soaring led to the aerobatics. And yep. there's this gap now. Uh, you you got to fill it in for me. 
you went from being one of Australia's best aerobatic pilots competing around the world in winning competitions. How did you get from flying this glider with your little nitro engine in the front to that point? What happened in between? Well, you know, because I was flying so much, my skills were growing and growing and growing, unbeknown to me. I was just enjoying myself. You know, if you love something, you end up good at it. And there's a gentleman out, out at Kellyville. His name was Ron Artis, um, fantastic modeler and great aerobatic pilot. And he said, you should fly in an aerobatic competition. <laughs> <laughs> and I was 17, maybe somewhere in there, 16. Again, Ron took me under his wing. He gave me an aeroplane. And we went to this competition in Pitt Town. And I won, you know, completely blew me away i won this event and i'm not trying to show any false humility i was generally surprised what, what plane were but you i also i was flying a uh, mac one a midwest mac one okay. and i just got one recently because i want to relive that, yeah, that history yeah. and i saw guys like tom prosser and the mcfarlands and you know the you know the brian green and all those guys you know legend pilots and um it just blew me away because, you know, I was thinking I was a pretty good pilot until I saw those guys fly. And I'm like, man, there's a whole new level. So then I, you know, I kept trying to conquer these levels. That's just the way I, I live my life. I, I get hold of something. I won't let it go until I conquer it. So, you know, I'm doing hundreds of practice flights, you know, a month, just flying, 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 crashing, flying, rebuilding, flying, flying. And I got, you know, more and more competitive and just over a period of time and, and learning and watching and trying to remain in a teachable posture, which is hard when you're a teenager, um, I managed to become quite successful as an aerobatic pilot. And how much during that era, you know, I'm always interested to understand how much practice you were doing and how much flying you were doing um, well, you know, to get to that level. Initially, you know, the first couple of years, I was probably doing about 20 flights a week, I guess, somewhere in that range. Um, and F3A, they would change the sequences every two years. So that was always fun because you had to learn a new sequence. When I was preparing for world championships or team trials or whatever, I was probably doing 100 to 150 flights a week, um, which was, if I look back at it now and, I, and I've done some coaching to some pilots, I, I would say that was too much. Um, I was just getting stale and I have a saying, you practice your mistakes until they're perfect. Yeah. Um, Eddie Edwards so, said that as well. He said he was yeah. practicing by himself and when he realized he was getting really good at practicing, uh, you know, bad habits. Well, Eddie and I had some fantastic battles. You know, Eddie was, was the benchmark. He was the guy to beat almost all the time. So Eddie was a great, great to have around because you're only as good as the guy you're trying to beat. And, uh, you know, I, I was uh, practicing really hard to just stay with Eddie and he was obviously practicing hard to stop me from beating him. And We had some great battles, you know. And uh, it was fun, you know, but yeah, I would probably, I think at the peak when I was like doing TSU prep and stuff, I was, I would tell people I was doing a thousand flights a season, which probably more in some seasons, maybe slightly less than others. But, you know, in general terms, a lot of practice flights. Yeah. Someone asked me once, what's the best thing I can buy to help my aerobatic career? And I used to tell them fuel. Mm. It's true. <laughs> I keep on saying this podcast after podcast when I talk to sort of elite aero modelers that are, you know, compete and the, the recurring story is the amount of time they spend on the sticks. It's, yes. 
you know that there is no well it's like that with any successful person in any career and any you know we talked about motor racing a little bit whatever mm. um you know those guys work hard at it there's no freebies yeah it just it's just you got to put the you got to put the time into it you know, what's the saying you got to put 10,000 hours in to become proficient at something or something like that but uh I'm a big believer at this I've been to a lot of uh aerobatic events and people will talk to ask questions of the gun pilot and say you know what 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 simulator should I use or and they sit there and go well just anyone just use it like a lot yeah. and then you'll get better and there's no sort of uh, drug that you can take that's going to make you a really good pilot is just a stick time, really. You've just got to want to win more than the other guy. That's true. Yeah. Do you yeah. find though? Is the, did you find you were trading other aspects of your life as a result of the commitment? You know, to do that many flights. Yeah. You know, do do you regret it or do you think that it was just um, you know part of the way you're wired? No, I, I have I have no regrets. I, I'm very very blessed. I I very good. Um, my wife is Ian McClay's daughter, um, who is a very good modeler in his own right, uh, fantastic builder and creator, and nothing was ever a problem. Oh, I need to make a retract system. Well, he just made one. You know, it's, it's just incredible. You know, talent. Uh, I met my wife. She was cutting out wing ribs on a Dremel saw in a black bikini. That's how we met. <laughs> and <great. laughs> I'm like, I am going to marry that girl. So yeah. She knew. She knew what was involved and she was so supportive. She never let me like play the, oh, do you mind if I... she was right there with me? She actually called for me for the first three world championships I went to. Mm. So, you know, nothing bad came from the focus and it kept me a lot, a lot of trouble. You know, if my mind's not active, I get into trouble. Mm. You know, I've got to be going, going, going and thinking and doing stuff all the time. And she knew that about me. So, yeah, there was no regrets at all. Everything good in my life has come from this hobby and my devotion to it. Yeah. Now, the you did start competing internationally as well. So, obviously, you rose up the ranks in the Australian scene, which makes you eligible to compete on the world scale. What was the experience like uh, going overseas and competing for Australia in aerobatic competitions? You know, it, it was it was good. Um the, the, the main reason was I, I kind of self-compete. I'm always trying to improve myself, always trying to make stuff better, improve on something that somebody's done. And, you know, once I kind of started winning a lot in Australia, I felt, you know, I was just kind of on this maintenance level, just phoning it in. No disrespect to the people that were competing against me, you know, and I know they were trying hard, um, but I was just kind of maintaining this level so I could, continue to win and i thought i've got to go overseas just like you know if you're driving uh, racing motor cars in australia or whatever you've got to go overseas to just kind of get into that depth of skill and my first world championships was in chesapeake um and <laughs> funny little side story um you know we're practicing and there's all hanno Pretner and and wolfgang and i'm all friends with those guys now but at the time i was just like those guys are amazing. And, you know, not only were they incredible flyers, they were great people and they talked to you. And I had all these perceptions like they were, they wouldn't talk or, you know, they were rude, but they were fantastic. You know, the, the US pilots, Ivan Christensen, uh, Bill Cunningham, all those guys of that era, they just took me under their wings. They were so 
impressed that someone from Australia would come all this way to go and fly a model airplane. Um, but anyway, the first round of my very first world championships, I actually won the flight on that line. Um, <laughs> talk about not rehearsing for that. I just collapsed in a heap after that. I couldn't fly to save my life because mm. I hadn't emotionally rehearsed for that, you know, and I had it in my head and, you know, you, you sort of people tend to bring you down so you don't get overconfident. Well, that's the wrong thing. You've got to let people almost set their goals so high that, that even if they don't achieve them, they're still going to achieve a very high level. And that was, that was a big eye-opening experience. And that just set, set the right tone for me for the rest of my flying career. I never, ever went back to an event without thinking I could win this world championships. Now, the chances of that are pretty slim. I know that was probably a very arrogant thought, but it was more about setting my goals high enough instead of, you know, a lot of guys on the teams that I flew in, ah, they just like to get the top 20 or they'd like to, you know, make the top 30 or fair enough, you know, but I wanted to win. I, you know, I, I just wanted to win. That was the dream. And I did okay. I made the finals most times I went and, you know, I won some rounds, you know, so if, if I flew like I did every round, I could have won. So it wasn't crazy thoughts. Um, but the, the point I'm making is set your goals much higher than you really think you can. And, you know, then if you come down a little bit from where your goals are, you're still going to do better than if you set your goals lower. Yeah, that's true. I don't know if that answered your question, but that, that was the big takeaway from the first time I ever competed overseas was as Australians in particular, you kind of isolated and you feel a little insecure. Well, I definitely did. And I know, I know some of the other members very well and they felt like they were kind of fish out of water. And I think it's an attribute to why I was quite successful internationally because I was able to get around the psyche of believing in myself. Uh, it was a sort of a strange cultural thing that, you know, they didn't like people that would brag about themselves or gloat or talk about how good they were. And it's not like that. It's just believing in yourself. You don't have to advertise the fact, you know. Steve Coram was always good like that. He really believed in himself. He was a fantastic pilot because he believed he could do it. You know, he didn't advertise it or strut around the place like he was great. He just got down to work and did it. Yeah, it's a bit like uh, one of the guys, uh, you may know, Jace Ducia. Yeah, I uh, know Jace very well. I helped him with his logo. Yeah, well, he's he's amazing, uh, you know, amazing person. And again, absolute nut a gun in that freestyle aerobatics arena and as humble as can be. And he, it's about, you know, I was in China with him and... Um, he, we were standing around and I said, hey, Jace, what's happening? When are you going to go for a fly? He said, look, if it was up to me, I'd be going back-to-back -back flights. You know, it was literally, <laughs> it wasn't about showing off. It was about his love of flying and almost not proving to himself, but he was doing it for himself, not in a selfish way, but it wasn't about anybody else and trying to be the best. It was for him trying to be the best that he could be. And that's why he keeps on practicing and whatever. And um, amazing, amazing man to 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 see. Now, you so you 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 really started your competition life flying things like F three A, but you did move into some freestyle aerobatics, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Well, the the um, you know F three A in uh, I think it was Australia. I was tenth or eleventh or something 
and that qualified me to go to the tournament of champions which um for your listeners that was a that was kind of like the indy 500 of of rc that was that was at least in most in aerobatic guys eyes if they're honest with themselves they all aspired to go to the tournament of champions so to just be invited was you know only 20 people in the world got to fly in it so you were you were the in the top 20 in the world just to be there um and the first time i went was the first year they made freestyle compulsory that was 1992 and you know i sucked at freestyle i'll, I'll admit that to this day i was just never very good at it <laughs> But I was creative, you know, I was a creative guy. So I thought, well, how can I, how can I work around my, my, not so much inabilities, but my incapabilities to do some of the freestyle stuff that like Kike and those guys were doing. So I just put together a nice package um, that, that flowed well. And, you know, it was working with the music and did everything I could, but I didn't fly beyond my skills. Um, I was, I was whatever Jace Deucer is, I was like polar opposite to that. <laughs> and I'm probably underselling myself. I, I, I did actually win the U S freestyle championships at one point, but you know, that was more the, the, the rarity than the commonality. I was not known for being a great freestyle pilot, uh, although I enjoyed it, but because it was part of your overall score, you had to do a freestyle and unknown and unknown. It was kind of forced upon us. Uh, so we all learned to do freestyle in, in the very grassroots days. And that's where a lot of the 3D, you know, KK created the whole 3D world yeah. because of that. And so to, I, I, like I consider the Tournament of Champions uh, to be the golden age of aerobatics. That for anyone that's been, he's an avid aerobatic guy. You see the old um, videos or even those, a friend of mine gave me his DVD or something of a, of a, a, a TIC tournament now. What were they like? Because you had some of the – it was almost like there were celebrities in the hobby back then in that freestyle scene, the likes of Chip Hyde and, and, and Kike, of course. What was it like to be at an event with these kind of pilots? You know, it was pretty amazing. Even to this day, I still – my strongest, you know, modelling memories are, are at that event. And, you know, probably my best friend is Steve Stricker. And we often talk about the challenges we faced at the tournament um, and the amount of effort. So, you know, I'd flown S3A, I'd flown in world championships, you know, I, there's a lot of effort to do that. So times that by at least five, and that was what it was like to prepare for the TOC. And unlike today, you couldn't just go to 7-Eleven and buy a 40% aeroplane, an engine that ran... You know, you had to develop everything. There was no motors. There was no servos. I actually spent some time at Sydney University and they helped me with, I was having flutter issues because the servos weren't powerful enough. And we were building these great big airplanes with, with uh, you know, 100-ounce servos and, and alcohol engines that were single cylinder. And oh, it was just a challenge just to get there, let alone fly well, you know. So it was the fun for the tournament and every single pilot that's flown in it will say the same thing. The fun was preparing for the event. Once the event started, it's like, well, we're back into competition mode. You know, but the unique part of the TOC was the evolution of the models, the engineering thought that went into the stuff. You know, some of the stuff you saw was just like, wow, I never would have thought of that. Like Kike had this crazy elevator that had two servos, one that would change and then it would 
would give him these 3D rates for freestyle. And, you know, uh, Silvestri from Italy, he had all these crazy super light aeroplanes with carbon fiber everywhere. And the Germans would turn up with these super quiet models of carbon fiber. It was just the leading edge of everything to do with RC aerobatics everywhere you looked, right up and down the flight line. And it was almost like competition was in the road because you couldn't get to see everything. Uh, but all those pilots, we were like family because it was kind of like you're inside the gates and I've been, I've kind of been inside the gates at some pretty high level motor racing events and all the drivers are the same. They're just guys. They're just normal guys. They don't, they're not in awe of each other. They're all doing the same thing. They all understand the challenges and they share ideas and problems that they're having and so forth. And the tournament was the same. We're all like family. And, you know, we'd talk about, oh, I blew this snappy, having trouble with this maneuver here. And, oh, yeah, I do it this way. And it was fantastic like that. But it took a while to kind of get into the circle. Not that I wasn't welcome. It was, again, just believing that I should have been there, you know. So it was kind of like a psychological thing. Because the first time you go there, you think everybody's flying better than you. They're just, it's just amazing. The maneuver quality at that event, to this day, I've never seen anything even close to it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Um it, it sounds a bit like Formula One, where you see Formula One as being the the hub of development in technology for for the automotive industry, and and that TOC era really paved the way for you know a new style of aircraft in aerobatics with brands such as Extreme Flight coming in, and but they wouldn't have been able to do what they've done without that learning from that TOC competition sort of environment. And it's funny there are some people here in Australia that think that. Uh, competition's a bad thing in the hobby but I, I think that not only does it advance the technology in the hobby and the and the, the, the models but also in the flying standard which um you know keeps pushing things along at the same time the the toc finished in what 2002 didn't it and you competed in correct what, about 10 of them or something like that was it uh 92 to 2002 and a couple of those were every other year so i i think it was nine maybe yeah okay you know, I don't kind of keep those kind of records, but I eight or nine. I don't. It wasn't ten. It's either eight or nine. I can't can't quote you exactly. You could probably look back and yeah, kind of edit that out. But <laughs> yeah. Now I want to move on and talk about your involvement in the industry side of things. It's interesting that a lot of people that have uh, that have performed at a high level on the world stage in Australia in the in the hobby. It's interesting that a lot of them ended up in the in the industry at some level. Uh, you were telling me before we started that you had a you had a business, um, but tell us a bit about yeah, that your working life and then how you progressed into uh, into the industry. Actually, it's a great segue because it was because of the TOC I got um, an opportunity to talk to Horizon Hobby. Well, in 1998, I sold out of my uh, marketing company, which was fantastic and successful. I I just felt like it's time to move on and try other things. I'd never had a job. I've always been freelance or worked for myself. So I'm like, I'm just going to get a job. And, you know, my business partner who to this day is still one of the most favorite people in my life, uh, she's totally okay with it, supported with it, and it worked out. Well, so I was in this kind of like uh, interim level of my life, like what, what's the next step? And I was having this same conversation with Mike McConville, and I said, Mike's like, well, what are you doing? How's your business? And I said, you know, I just, I've sold, I've sold that and I'm just kind of doing some freelance here and there and consulting with some companies. And 
And Steve's wife, Pat, had offered me a job in, uh, in, on the East Coast over in Baltimore area there. And I went and interviewed at that, that position. And I was telling Mike about it. And Mike said, oh, so you'd be prepared to work in the U.S.? I said, well, I hadn't really thought about it. It was just an opportunity for a job. You know, where it is, you know, we'll see if we can make that work if we get the job. And uh, that was in October. We had that conversation. I get a phone call um, in December from the director of marketing saying, we really want you to come and work for us. And I'm like, well, why is that? Because <laughs> we really need a creative director. Well, it was such a perfect fit. You know, I had a marketing background, um, graphic design background, uh, creating, you know, all the print material and advertising material. And basically I was in charge of everything for a hobby company. And I'm like, man, that is such a good fit. So we talked and they made me this offer and it turned up Christmas Eve, <laughs> literally on my door. So we put it under the Christmas tree and opened it up Christmas Day and it was a fantastic offer, very generous. And I said to Caroline, well, what do you think about this? And she said, let's do it. Let's just put our whole life in a container and check it out. And that's how it happened. It was, you know, a big step, of course. Um, I wasn't reckless. I mean, I did my research and figured out cost of living and, you know, I had some things in place so they couldn't just fire me once I got there. You know, we had to kind of at least give it a shot for a year or so so I could kind of get my feet. And uh, it worked out fantastic. I love the place to this day. You know, it's taught me so many great lessons in life, that company. My yeah. daughter actually works there now. Oh, really? So yeah. That, that's interesting. So you, what year did you join Horizon and when did you when I did started you in uh, 2000 and I left in 2017. I actually retired in 2017, quote, unquote, because I seem mm. to be working harder than I was when I was working. Yeah. Well, you, so you worked as uh, initially. I was 17 years there. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a really good stint and you started as a creative director and where did you end up well it's interesting um the the original founder of horizons a gentleman named rick stevens who is the smartest man in business i've ever met it's just a really wise soul very smart and one of his his attributes was he listened you know a lot of people especially high up in companies they feel like they have to know everything where rick was the opposite he's like hey, I've employed you because you know more about this than I do. He was that kind of guy. And um, he, he came to me after about a year in this job and he said, look, we can get creative directors from Chicago. We can get them anywhere. He said, you have a set of skills that's very, very unique. And you're about one of two or three people in the whole world that has this skill set. And I'm like, oh, come on, Rick. He says, no, 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 let, hear me out. Hear me what I want you to do. I want to create uh, this marketing program where we market to our customers directly. And that's how the whole team thing started. That's how we created the Horizon team. Instead of, you know, doing stuff through, you know, as you know, the, more, the closer you get to the customer, the more effective your marketing is. Well, talking to the customer directly is about as effective as a marketing tool as you can get, word of mouth, so to speak. So he, he put me in this position this field marketing manager or it was called a team manager at the time and i went from uh i had like 20 reports or 25 reports and i was buying millions of dollars worth of printing and i had this sort of tushy executive type role to this kind of this sort of lone ranger job with half an employee that you know i felt like this was a real step backwards 
And, you know, that was my pride speaking. And Rick kind of coached me through it and said, no, just work with me. And it was the best decision. Um, of, well, not that I really, I don't think I had a choice, but Rick let me believe that it was my choice. And that was fantastic. You know, he was absolutely 100% right. It was such a perfect fit for my life skills. And uh, so I ended up being the field marketing manager or director of field marketing and pretty much did that more or less through my entire career. I did a lot of development work just because I could and just helping out the development team. But my primary role was marketing our products. So I was responsible for getting Spectrum, you know, into the marketplace. That was a, that was a fun challenge, breaking that wall down with 2.4. But yeah. It was great. It was but, good but I'll tell you what, it worked though. And I look, I think that the, the product's always been pretty good that Horizons produced. And uh, my first uh, radio transmitter was Spectrum because I didn't want to run crystals. And uh, the DX7, I've still got it and it still works. Yep, yep, I broke the antenna. Yep. I'm trying to find a replacement antenna. But uh, DX7 was like color TV. Yeah, it, well, it's true. And it's still it's still robust you know, today. And I, I use it as a backup for some of my smaller models up at my, uh, up at my holiday house kind of thing. And and it, it's still going strong, but um, it appears that your role involved, I think it was a dream for a lot of people, getting paid to go to events and uh, fly model airplanes and talk to hobbyists. How many events were you attending in a year? Uh, I was averaging in the 30s. Um, I was doing about 40,000 miles a season. And I did that pretty solidly for about 12 years. And... I mean, it was it taught the last two or three years. I was burnt out. I was I was way past. No one should ever do that job for more than ten years, no matter how good they are, they are at it, no matter how much they love it, because you just get burnt out. Because when you go to an event, and in the position I was in, and the status that I carried, basically I was like the face of the company. That's how Rick put it to me. When people see my face, they see that Horizons at their event. And that sounds wonderful, but you are responsible for everybody's happiness on that flight line if they're using your products, even if they're not, you know. So people would be in your face if something didn't work or they crashed their model. So, you know, I, I studied psychology when I was, you know, going, I did a um, secondary marketing course on psychology. And thank goodness I did that because it helped me get through those challenging conversations. Um, but, but it was, you know, I don't want to sell this. It, it, it was a, bad thing it was a wonderful job um, but I was really motivated just by helping people have fun I really wanted to see people succeed I used to actually carry a Futaba radio and I another team I I had a guy that was kind of even went to more events than me and he had the field kit with him and he used to carry a Futaba radio just in case a customer had a problem and we could keep them flying um, we were that devoted to keeping people in the air it was and so that was the good side of it um, but but the, you you can destroy your hobby very quickly if you don't have the right frame of mind. So that's one of the reasons I retired. I didn't want to lose the joy for the hobby. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes it you can get that blurred line between work and fun, and uh, you know, and I know that I've I've teetered on the edge with different different aspects of being involved in the industry side of the hobby. But uh, I think I found a happy place at the moment and uh, a good mix, especially just doing this podcast. I really enjoy and. You've you worked in that industry for a long time, and you know obviously you've seen ups and downs in the industry. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you view it at the moment? You know, look, looking at what you see in the industry at the moment. Uh, well, I, I can't I can't say too much because I'm still, you know, bound to horizon. Um, 
But I will say Horizon's doing exceptionally well. We've always done well when the general market is is struggling or there's a recession or you know, there's a crisis in the world. And we've always done well. And I, I believe that the psychology behind that is people just want to buy something for themselves just to take their mind off all the dark that's going on around them. You know, whether it be financial challenges or, you know, the COVID-19 or whatever it is. And it's always going to be something. And so people tend to gravitate towards their their, their little, I call them joy shots. Um, so they go and buy a foamy or they, they get, you know, right now everyone's getting back into building. I can't make enough kits to keep them building. Um, so in the U.S., the, the actual sales, hobby sales is really strong. Uh, event attendance, depending on the segment, is is either slightly declining, um, stable, or growing, which is kind of how it always is. It just moves from segment to segment. Uh, jets is booming. Um, all the the kind of it's interesting. All the high end stuff is really really doing well. The big that's, events. That's true. Like that's something that I've noticed here in Australia is. The jet scene is just growing in leaps and bounds, and the money being spent is really flowing at a, at a decent pace at that level. And um, you know this this shift back to, to the high quality kind of side of things. Um, but you're right, like I've noticed here in Australia with the whole corona corona issue, that ledger businesses and ledger industry in a kind of way. So you know, down the road from my office is a is a company that sells inline skates, and the mm-hmm. owner said to me, "It's like Christmas; people are buying things, bikes." Yeah. And yeah, I think I would say Christmas sales are going on right now in a lot of retail outlets. Yeah, which which is really good That's to see. To put it. And look, I know you can't say too much, but from my perspective, looking at the industry, Horizon Hobby are definitely the leaders from a business perspective, a marketing perspective, a product offering perspective. That you can just tell that they're run like a good like a good business should be run. And we do have other businesses in the hobby that really add to to the mix as well that are trying their best. But when you look at that. At Horizon Hobby, it's one of those brands that you just know that they're going to give you some value. You know that their product's going to be okay, and uh, you know anything from the uh, from a foamy all the way up to your Hanger Nine, uh, more expensive models. From where I sit, Horizon well, Hobby have always positioned themselves very well. Yeah, Horizons Horizons not really competing with anybody. They're competing with themselves, and the magic Horizon has, and it's a tough crowd to work with because. There is so much competition inside the walls between developers. Um, and I can say this now that I'm not working there, and, and I love all those guys. They're all friends of mine. But they're all competing in a friendly way. I mean, it's not nasty. Um, but they're all trying to outdo each other. Who can produce the best whatever it is? And, you know, it's it breeds really good quality products. And, you know, you're going to get people like, oh, I had all these problems. Horizon can't control every single product that gets made. That's the challenge is other people are making their ideas. You know, that's not made in the U.S. as much as they'd love to have everything produced, you know, internally. The customer base just won't pay for it. So, you know, the the, the maybe the product uh, woes here and there that you see, it's, it's just manufacturing inconsistencies. And, and they try very hard. They have a complete quality assurance program, people that watch stuff coming off the line, they do everything they can to control it, but stuff just slips through. But in general, um, their products are so, <laughs> you know, they're, they're the best they can be. You know, 
because they want them to be good for the customer, but they also want to be a good developer. And that's the only way they can really measure themselves is how successful their products are. You know, I, I was listening to your podcast with Ali. You know, Ali just, he just gets so excited about what he's working on. He'll, he'll drop by and run ideas by me. He's great. He reaches out. He doesn't just think what he knows is everything. You know, he, he looks and he's got a good marketing mind and he's got a great eye to see what the customer really, really wants, you know, because he's a pilot himself. You know, every single one of those products is produced by a, not just a guy that dabbles, but an active modeler. Yeah. Like these guys are, are superstars in, in their modeling career, let alone, you know, their, their working horizon career. That's what I think I, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier with some of the people that I met in the industry, they're all fanatics because sometimes it's not a great business for them to actually establish you know there's not a lot of money for some of them but they absolutely love the hobbies even some of the manufacturers that i've met in china that they say to me oh not make a lot of money but you know i like model airplanes and it's uh yeah. and it's yeah. and it's true and, and i i love to tell people that story so they don't just take it for granted you know these guys are, are absolutely on our side and trying to do their best and there are i was i was talking to one manufacturing no longer manufacturers it was a small little manufacturer of balsa aerobatic planes and i said um if you could would you make better, better quality products he said yes he said but customer don't want to pay and so yeah so i said are you, right, are you restricted right. by by what people are willing to pay he goes yes we can make very good products but if we can't make money out of it then we can't do it and so but as you said i think that there is this shift that you know, with you look at the jet end of the market where people are spending a lot of money on their jets, um, that there is still an audience out there that's, that values the hobby enough to want to spend that kind of yeah, money. It's an inter and I'm not saying that you got to spend a lot of money to be to to play in the areas that is that are growing in this hobby. Um, you know, jets are you know just by the way they are, they are expensive, but even people that are kind of on a budget they're still trying to get into a jet because they want to hang out with people that, that are at the pinnacle of, of, let's say, modeling, you know, the jet, the complexity of it, uh, the way they fly, the, you know, it, it ticks a lot of boxes and, and it's very engaging. And so, you know, when I, I, the foam market, which, you know, I love and it serves a purpose, but I call it like fast food modeling. You know, it's like if you eat too much fast food, it's not good for you. You need to have a good, home cooked meal every now and again and that's kind of what jets are you know it's a big commitment and it's it's great because you you put the money in you put the time in and and you get a lot of reward because it's cool and they're fun and you're flying with some great pilots like ali and who you know people that that are known in that community um but you know there's other areas as well I, to get back to your other question modeling's pretty good um in the u.s i would say it's about a seven out of 10. Um, there's a lot of people talking negatively. Um, people just talk negatively. And unfortunately with social media, they've got a voice. Um, but you've got to try and filter that out because if you actually go to events, people don't talk like that. They're happy and they're the events themselves are quite active um, and participation is very good. Yeah, I'm a big fan of events. And, and you, know, you, you talk about turbines and why did I buy a turbine? Exactly what, what you mentioned. It was about participating and being with the other people at an event. That if you know, I went to a jet event in Wangaratta, the Wangaratta Jets event, and I saw everybody yep. there and I went, I want to be part of this. 
and an, an opportunity came up to buy a jet at a good price that you know had a couple of hours of runtime on it and that's about it and i bought it perfect and the wife said do we really need another jet in the living room i said <laughs> yes we do and uh, it's still it's sitting Cheaper in my beer. well it's it's now moved to my office it's sitting in my office but uh I'm waiting to go out for a fly but uh now so you you retired in 2017 but I don't think you're really fully retired because you've now got your own brand of uh bolsa kits the um Peter Goldsmith uh What's the business called? Peter Goldsmith Models, is it? Peter Goldsmith Designs. Yeah, Designs. that's my daughter's yeah. idea who has great marketing insights. She said, Dad, if you call it your name, that's what people will search for and it'll always come up in a search engine because yeah. she actually works for our web team in, in Horizon. So she's kind of in tune with all that. So I said, all right, okay, that works. So yeah, I, I, I didn't plan on doing that. I, When I retired, I bought a laser cutter and just for my own personal use. And uh, that was a great learning. <laughs> There's a whole nother podcast. Um, so I started doing this, this airplane called a Schmilak, which is like this tow plane. Um, and I just did it for myself. Well, you know, I'm posting photos on Facebook and generating, uh, interest unintentionally. And, you know, as, as the saying goes, activity breeds activity. By the time I'd finished the, the model, I had 20 people that wanted one. I'm like, Oh, well, let me sit down and think about this. So I kind of figured out a price. And started cutting kits. Well, all of a sudden now I've got like, I had to make 30 kits. And I'm like, this is crazy, you know. And and it just, that's how it started. And then I, everything I did, people were like, are you going to kit this? Are you going to kit this? And it's been fantastic because I love designing airplanes. If there was one thing I love to do is design models. I, I did it when I was five years old because I had to. Now I've got a choice. I still love to do it. So it's it's a great outlet for that that need. And uh, I can design something, I'll sell a bunch, I'll sell a few, it doesn't matter. You know, it's not, I don't need the money to, to survive. Uh, so I can make it as good as I want and as good as I can. And I'm not sort of driven by a cost or anything like that. If it's too expensive for people, I get it. No problems, you don't have to buy it. So it's been fantastic, you know, and, and uh, I keep, I have more ideas and time to produce them all. Uh, but it's, it's been good. I've really, really enjoyed it. And it's got me into other segments. You know, we talk a little bit about diversity. Um, you know, and probably a little bit back to your regrets question. One thing that aerobatics did do was it did not allow me to do any other aspect of the hobby. Um, and, and you can't be successful as an aerobatic pilot and do anything else. I don't know that any aerobatic pilot will disagree with me saying that. Um, so, you know, when I started this field marketing job, um, I started getting involved in all these other areas. You know, I get, got back to competition soaring. I, I was going to big fly-ins and I started competing in scale. I used to make fun of the scale guys. And now I'm like loving it, you know. Um, it's one of my favorite things to do is to fly scale models. So, yeah, diversity is a really good thing. And I know I'm kind of bouncing around here, but I just want to make that point about importance of diversity because one of the challenges i faced as a marketer at horizon was you know getting people connected was one thing but retaining them that was the big challenge and just not enough diversity and and keeping the the consumer challenge you know what are you going to do to to get the next thing you know he's he got to constantly keep challenging the consumer so he buys more stuff yeah i agree and one of the things that i've i've focused on since starting this brand flat out RCs, 
is keeping people involved in the hobby by sharing stories and and motivating them. Even some of the video work that I've done, it's about showcasing an event that I was at so that you come to that event. And you know, it's not a it's not a money spinner for me, but it's something that I think plays a part in keeping people active. And when well, as you said, activity breeds activity and uh, it helps the industry. It helps the flying clubs. It helps the whole movement. Uh, uh, more events uh, come on the on the, the horizon. That kind of thing. We had a we had a the first ever stole competition, RC stole competition down here in Melbourne, and it was phenomenal event. And I shot a video at it to showcase it. But you know, all the people with their Piper Cubs and their foamies and all that kind of stuff came out, and we and and the organisers made a day of it. It was a really really good event. And, oh, that's awesome! And that again, you go to an event like that, and guess what? People left that event going to buying another stole plane. Of and, course. And it's not just, and it wasn't put on for that purpose. It was they chose to do that because they enjoyed it so much. So that that event, uh, once events can get it back up and running here in Australia. That event will keep on growing, and 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 the participants will keep on uh, improving, and we'll have more gas aircraft because, you know, that will that that set the category will will improve and that kind of thing. So, I'm a big believer of it. But I want to say something just to finish off on the industry side of things is that your models are available in Australia through Landown Under Aerosports. Correct. Yep. Tyson yep. Dodd up yep. there now. Basically, from what I gather, is Tyson is cutting the kits locally, so they're all sort of traditional kit builds aren't they correct yeah tyson's his own entity i he has all the cut files i get a small commission when he sells the kits um if he can afford to it doesn't even matter if he doesn't i just i just want to see people building again if you know when you retire and like i said i'm not sure i'm retired (laughs) whatever i am i'm (laughs) um you've got to have something to do. You've got to have a reason to get up every day. A lot of people ask me, what's it like to be retired? Is the thing of retiring? I'm kind of a bit young to be retired. So that's why I don't like saying I'm retired. Uh, however, you've, it's really, really important to get up every day and do something. And so encouraging people to build again, do something with their hands. It's like getting back to that home cooked meal. You know, it always tastes better when you make it yourself. And, you know, that's what we're selling. So I said, Tyson, we had this conversation on the way to Top Gun. I said, I need to, you know, guys in Australia want to buy my stuff. It's just so expensive to ship down there. And he says, well, what if I got a laser cutter? Bless his heart. He goes out and buys a laser cutter, learns how to use it. He comes here, comes to my garage. I show him how to drive. He knew nothing. And there he is giving it a good old college try. I love the guy to death because he just gets in there and has a go. And I hope people support him down there because he's doing a good job. He cares. You know, if there's something not right, he fixes it. You know, he's a good guy in the industry. Yeah, no, he's a good guy. I've had him on the podcast as well, and he's he's really working hard for the hobby here in Australia. And some of the models, a lot of the models that you are offering are gliders, and I love the look of the Foxbat. It's like it takes me back to to the old Balsa um, aircraft because, of course, we see a lot of uh, composites coming into you know carbon fiber in that high end yep. gliding market, but. But uh, I love the look of that fox bat, and uh, I know. Good. I designed that when I was sixteen. Yeah, well, see, you could tell that that's sort of that older <laughs> era of glider, but it's something that it's my era when I was growing up that I can relate to and seeing that. Right, and right. It's a beautiful looking uh, thing. So if if you are interested in any of Peter's designs, take a look at Landown Under Aerosports on the web, and uh, you can purchase those all those kits uh, locally, which is great. Now, you mentioned Top Gun. So you are still going to events. And I was reading, I've got a magazine sitting here next to my bed, uh, a US magazine. And the winner of the Top Gun is Peter Goldsmith. And you're flying, <laughs> I think, an, was it an F-18? 
No, it was a BAE Hawk. BAE Hawk, and and that was, yeah. uh, but so in the Aussie scheme, by the way, that's right in the Australian scheme. And the so Top Gun is for anyone that doesn't know is is basically as the name suggests, it's the best of the best of uh, models, scale models, whether they be jets or. Uh, prop planes Anything, and things yeah. like that and yeah. of course different categories but you basically won the best of the best tell us a bit about the model and what work you did on it to to get it to that level well the base kit is a tomahawk designs uh bae hawk 100 the 100 is the long nose uh, version of the hawk and it's uh i want to say it's 2.35 scale so it's like 30 percent is that right europeans talking this fraction of a scale i think it's 30 percent. it's a very big model um very lightweight beautifully built and the model had flown in the world jet masters and one of the things you can't control unless you just design from scratch is the outline so you, you're kind of cautious about outline accuracy but the, i knew the hawk was good um and basically i took the base kit uh, which is very, you know, typical German quality, very nicely done. And then just got a bunch of photos from the scheme, which I had great resource. I knew guys that worked on the aircraft. Um, I had an acquaintance that knew the pilot. So I had really good research and had some great history lessons on, on why the aircraft came to be. And basically, I tried to replicate that story. That's the magic, the Top Gun is you're not building a scale model. You're telling, you're giving the class a history lesson on, on everything to the rivets to who flew it to why this is this shape and so forth and so on so i had great data on the model and uh even down to the weathering the model was called mudguard by the local base uh commander because um it was dirty the pilot um uh i've forgotten the guy's name it's on the front and i'm down i'm upstairs um slash was his call sign um, but he flew and flew and flew. He just loved to fly. And this, this aircraft was just filthy. And the base commander said, you need to clean that aircraft. And like, yeah, yeah, whatever. So they, they used this scheme, which was done for two weekends for the Amberley Air Show to help promote, a, uh, you know, the Air Force, Australian Air Force, in kind of like the Blue Angels, but it was a commemorative scheme um, promoting the Black Panther Squadron. And it was only on the aircraft for, I believe, three or four weeks. Uh, so there's this big, like, debate whose aircraft was going to get this scheme, you know. And uh, so they put it on Slash's aircraft, which was the dirtiest, grubbiest aircraft on the base. And But it had this beautiful black, shiny top with all the graphics. So everyone called it Mudguard because it was shiny on top and dirty underneath. That's a true story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, so, you know, I built the Hawk and I had all those stories and, and uh, I used the project to kind of help people learn about weathering. You know, I'm a graphic designer. My wife's an artist. So I've got, I've got a good leg up on, on, you know, weathering an aircraft is like doing a painting. And so I wanted to teach that and share that knowledge. So I did a couple of videos on Facebook Live and so forth. And so I used the Hawk as a kind of a teaching tool as well. And it, it all kind of tied together. And, you know, I, I had one Top Gun with that. That... You know, that's, as I said, you go there to win. I'm not going to deny I didn't want to win. But it was fun to see. I had so much support because of all these people that had learned how to weather. And oh, I used your video. It was fantastic. And it's so uh, good to not say, hey, I did all that. I taught all those people. But just to be able to share your knowledge 
And, you know, there's nothing I know that I didn't know when I was born. I, I was taught by people, you know. Everyone thinks I was just born with this skill and I just knew how to do it. I didn't. I, I had to learn from others. So if people stop sharing that knowledge, it all dies. Well, it's interesting that uh, as something that you share with Ali, that Ali was always very giving in his knowledge and uh and it's not it's not showing off it's just sharing your experiences and and as i i said to ali that there are certain people in the world when you hear them talk you know they're making sense and you're one of those ali's the same and if ali says do this put this servo in the plane okay that's the servo because ali said it was right and he knows it's right because you know what he put it in there and it worked and so he's, he's talking from experience like you are and i actually i watched one of your videos that you, I think you recently put on Facebook about um, creating rivets. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and that's, yeah. that's just excellent, and that's that's it really helps. It's kind of like homespun video, but I, it's, yeah, the it works. Of it is kind of contagious. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's really, really good, and and then that's what people need to do is share that knowledge rather than just hide it away. Because you talk about building, well, we need to learn how to do that, and we need to learn from others, as you mentioned. So, do you do you do you really enjoy the building side of things? You know, I do. I. This is a later in life thing. Um, I, I think I, I had to divide my time up to 90% flying, 10% building. And, and my my competition models were nice, you know, but they weren't like I can build now because I, I only allocated so much time to prepare them. Where now I spend, it's more the other way, or maybe 80, 20. I, I just really enjoy the building and the creating because now I have the time to do that. So it's kind of like, oh, great. Now I can do what I and see how good I can be at that. You know, so I'm devoting time at building. There, there are, I'm doing a couple of um, commission builds right now. And I don't want to do too much of that. That, that is, that is, um, it's okay, but it's not something I want to do a lot of because it, it's like I'm I'm almost too responsible for my own good and I just spend way too much time doing stuff because I just want it to be perfect. You know, don't let good get in the road of perfect, as they say. Um, and so, yes, I love the build. I, I really like to design. And so buildings are kind of um, a measuring stick of design. And, uh, yeah, creating and teaching is probably my favorite thing. Uh, I've always been told, that I was a good teacher and I never really uh, believed it because I'm kind of quite insecure. I'm kind of shy, believe it or not. So just to get up in front of a crowd and start talking just freaks me out. Um, but once I'm there and I'm doing it, I feel great afterwards. It's like, wow, that was good. I feel like I really helped some people then. Yeah. So yeah, building's fun. Teaching's more fun. Now, speaking of building, it's a question I ask everybody. And that is, what has been your favorite model? Um, I'm going to put that into two categories, my most memorable model and my most favorite model. Um, my most memorable model is the Foxbat. And the reason that was my first kind of design, like from the ground up, nothing else in it, but my own thoughts and ideas based on what I'd experienced. And, you know, as a 15, I think I was 15 or 16 when I designed it, um, you know, I created that. I drew it on the back of some brown paper and I think it was Christmas paper. It was white on the other side. Well, anyway, um, and I created it. I bought the covering. I made up my own airfoil, which I changed. I was advised to change it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it flew fantastic. I, I won the Australian Nationals with it. 
uh, it was just such a incredible experience for me to create something and, and have it succeed, you know. Um, but currently, my probably my favorite model is my uh, Saber Jet. I have a Tomahawk design Saber Jet, which is, uh, I think it's also 30%. And it's it's just, what a beautiful jet to fly. Um, has You know, those that haven't flown jets, jets have this, this flying style, it's very smooth and graceful. It, it's like a, they fly like gliders. Uh, there's no vibration. There's no aggravation. They're just absolutely pure flying aircraft. And the Sabre's just got so much character when it flies. And this thing's big, so it flies light, and it's got such a great speed envelope. Uh, I just love it to death. And, uh, you know, you know. so now I'm sort of kind of painting myself into the jet category. Um but it's my my favorite aircraft. If you know, was the better way to ask the question. If you just had to have one model uh, for whatever reason, I'd probably keep the Sabre. Yeah, that, that, those guys at Tomahawk uh, Aviation—they they build some beautiful models. I've actually I dealt with them a little bit. I got one of their DLGs and uh, reviewed it for them. But uh, gee, their jets are amazing. What they're doing with their scale jets, and they're good people. You know, they're modelers. They're they're trying hard. They're their quality is is hands down phenomenal. Like I don't think anyone would argue with that. Um, you know, no quality is spared. It's as good as it can be, regardless of price. Um, and so, you know, when you get a Tomahawk kit, you're going to get a very good quality kit, and you're going to pay for it. You know, that's what it costs. Um, but you know, my stage of life, um, that, that's what I want to be. I want to be a RC modeler, so I don't mind spending the money on it. Yeah. Well. Peter, I've absolutely enjoyed having a chat with you and, and uh, listen to every word uh, that you've said. And uh, I, I just want to thank you on behalf of the Australians for flying the flag for Australian era modelling overseas. That you know we still consider you to be an Aussie, and you still consider yourself to be an Aussie as well. Do you think you'll ever move back to Australia, or is is the US now your home? Uh, well, obviously, I have you know investments here. I've got a house here. I've got a daughter here. I've got a son-in-law here. Uh, I come back home every, well, right now I was planning on coming home soon, but I can't travel there right now. Um, but I get back every two years and I love Australia, you know, there, I have a house there. I have property there. So, you know, I, I, it's not out of the question. Um, but you know, we, we're going to probably, uh, we even joke about snowboarding coming back to Australia and just, you know, having summer all year round. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. Um, but you know, I, I miss, I miss all the guys. I, I spent a little time, uh, I was there, I think about a year ago, came and saw mum and dad and drove up and hung out with Tyson. And we had a little kind of makeshift event up on his farm. And it was just really cool hanging out with everyone, hanging out with Bones and his dad and yeah. and the guys. And just was just a great time. And I miss that. You know, I miss hanging out with my Aussie buddies. My wife said, you know, you're going to start this conversation off with your half Australian, half American accent, and you're going to have a complete Australian accent by the end of the conversation. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Tell you what, it's correct. The slang, you know, it's funny. The slang, the US just does not get Australian slang. They just, they just, I say stuff every now and again, and they're like, what's that mean? And I'm like, oh, yeah, like, I call the boot all the time and yeah. stuff like that, footpath and sidewalk. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So the slang hasn't left me. Well, you're doing a good job, and I really, really appreciate you joining me today, Peter. And uh, thanks for jumping on well, board. Well, I with appreciate podcast. what you're doing. You know, it's it's not just a you know look at me go. You're trying to promote, you know, and create enthusiasm. And I just appreciate people like you in this world that are, 
you know, putting your own personal needs aside and trying to help others grow. And, you know, you want to share your joy for the hobby. So, you know, you need to give yourself a pat on the back. I'm going to do that right now. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Thanks for joining me. Well, you take care. Yep. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. I really enjoyed my chat with Peter Goldsmith. Um, I like it. If, if I had a camera just observing me whilst I listened to Peter, and a lot of you know me as a, you know, I can talk. I, I don't mind having a chat, but with these podcasts, I just get to sit and listen and listen to Peter's story and pipe in with a few questions now and again and a bit of comment, a few comments, but really enjoying the process, especially when I speak to people like Peter Goldsmith that uh, it was interesting he said he was you know he's not great in these kind of forums but i don't know about you but i thought that he did an excellent job and uh he he really you know was, was very happy to tell us about his story which i hope you find interesting as interesting as, it, as i did so thanks peter goldsmith you're a legend and uh, thanks for everything you've done in the hobby and continue to do don't forget you can follow him on uh, facebook and things like that see some of the projects he's working on because he's still sharing his knowledge through some little videos and stuff like that especially to scale jets and things like that is into nowadays so really appreciate peter joining me on the line and i thank all of you for for joining me as well and for all those that are stuck in with the flat out rc podcast don't forget to subscribe if you're listening to an apple podcast spotify or soundcloud jump on board and don't forget to connect with our social media platforms instagram facebook look if you listen to this you're probably already connected so tell your friends that's the biggest thing they do let's try to build this thing up and and uh, give our modeling a voice. You know, there's not many of us left in Australia producing uh, new content. So uh, I'll end up stopping if nobody supports me and go and do something else. There's always something for me to do. Uh, but uh, I want to continue doing this just to, so we've got an Australian voice out there to share events, things like that. In a normal year when we have events, I'd invite promoters to come in and tell us about their events and about themselves and all that kind of stuff. But it was nothing happening. So we'll just keep on going on. And as I said, next week, another big episode with Michael Andrisic and more to come after that. We're still going every week. can't remember what episode we're up to, but uh, you'll see it in the title of this podcast. So thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep on flying. Thanks. Thanks.